The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in the book of Job. And we'll be looking at Job chapters 38 through 40. 38 through, th- through 40, and we'll end at 40 verse 5. Job 38. Please join me once again in prayer. Lord, as we, we, we desire that you would speak to us through your word. We, we know that's how you speak to us. Lord, everything that we need for life and godliness, everything we need for training in that we might be fully equipped, Lord, your word provides. And Lord, you alone know the, the various needs, challenges, fears, burdens that each of us have. You know how we need to be prepared for the future. We pray that you would work in power through your word to conform us to your likeness so that we would honor you as your children. Again, we ask for your help because we know we need it. We don't want to just learn. We don't want just more information. Lord, we want transformation. And so we ask that you would work in power even now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm curious how you would answer some of these questions that were recently asked by children to their parents. How do I know that I'm real and not just a dream of somebody else? When a child was looking at a baby, they asked, do they know that they're alive yet? What did it feel like on your last day of being a child? When asked, why do we have to be born young and grow old? Why can't we be born old and grow young? Seems more logical. Another asked, where do thoughts come from? Another, while sitting at a restaurant, asked, why are we here, Daddy? Well, the father answered, we're here to have lunch. No, no. Why are we here on earth? Well, the next few chapters of Job are essentially a stream of intense questions that God is actually going to ask Job. And they're asked really in response to Job's desire to understand why his suffering is so intense. God, why are you allowing all of these calamities to fall upon me? He, he, was, he, he asked for an audience with God, and now he has gotten it. We saw last week that Job's error is not that he was perplexed by that question. His problem wasn't that he didn't understand why he was suffering, but that he questioned the wisdom and the goodness of God in his suffering. He foolishly assumed in that question that he actually knew what was better for him than actually God did. And that if he could just meet with God, he could set God right. Now, we can't forget the context of Job's situation, though. Because he's recently lost everything. All ten of his children. All of his possessions. All of his respect. All of his dignity. He's been racked with severe pain night and day for months, and he hasn't had any relief. 
the once greatest man in all of the East, is now living in a garbage dump. And even his friends who have come to comfort him haven't offered any comfort. In fact, they've turned on him and they've accused him of horrific sins. And none of this makes any sense to Job. And, and that is why he foolishly says what he says about God. And, and I want to remind us of Job's situation because if we too were in that situation or we even knew somebody in that situation, we too would question the goodness and righteousness of God. In fact, that's why God has given us the book of Job because he knows our tendency. He knows us. Knowing that we would fail to understand his providential purposes, especially in regard to suffering, he wants to gently put us in our place, so to speak, so that when things happen in our lives that don't make sense to us, we wouldn't turn from him who is the only source of hope. He wants us to know you're not going to get it a lot of the time. And don't assume that you will. But worst of all, don't doubt my goodness. Don't doubt my love. Don't doubt my purposes in wisdom. That really is the purpose of the book of Job. So this book is a gift to us, particularly in our suffering. It won't tell us why we are suffering. But rather, it tells us in our human wisdom, there's no way we would even be able to know. We can't understand all of God's purposes. They're beyond us. And last week, we saw that Elihu, who really serves as a prophet, gives six six speeches in response to Job. But what's interesting is when God speaks, he only has two speeches. And the reason he has two speeches is because the two speeches that God gives actually parallel the first two chapters where God had two trials that he set up in chapter one and chapter two, where God actually put himself on trial because he asserted to all the angels and Satan in particular that Job was an upright and righteous man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Job questioned or not Job, but Satan questioned God in that tested Job and and God proved that he was right. Job did not turn. But God was putting himself on trial and the chat the chapters that follow actually continue those trials except it's not Job that's really being tested. It's actually God that's being put on trial by Job. Job actually in the three cycles of deliberations takes on the role of Satan because he accuses God of unrighteousness. And what we need to recognize is Job really is like every man. He represents every man. God puts himself on trial to show that he's trustworthy. And he wants us to recognize that just because we don't understand him doesn't mean we have any right to accuse him of unrighteousness or foolishness with our lives. The function of God's response to Job in these next few chapters really is to expose the limited value of human wisdom. 
And, and God never does answer Job's question. He asked him a bunch of questions, but he never asked Job's question as to why he suffered. But he shows Job he doesn't need to know. All that Job needs to know is that God is sovereign and that he's good. Job just simply needs to trust him. Very simple outline in this first speech of God. Uh, Job's ignorance over creation is exposed. Then his impotence. Then his ignorance and impotence over animals in chapter 39. And finally, Job concludes that he really affirms everything that God says about his ignorance and impotence in 40 verses 1 through 5. Let's look at uh, first his ignorance over creation in chapters in chapter 38, the first part of chapter 38. As I mentioned last week, Elihu finishes his speech in chapter 37 really by introducing God. He's describing how God's powers over all the all the storms of the earth and and actually on the horizon there's a tornado that's coming and God's presence is actually in the tornado or whirlwind. And then beginning here at chapter 38, God speaks to Job out of that tornado. And verses verse 2 essentially summarizes God's main point. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That word counsel can be translated advice or purpose or plan. The fact that it's darkened or obscured means that God's telling Job that he has no clue about what's going on in the universe, let alone his own life. By even asking the question, it's just showing your ignorance, Job. So he wants Job to see actually how vast his ignorance actually is, and not just his ignorance, but his impotence. Because even if he understood what was going on, Job would have no power to change it. And yet Job had the audacity to question the power and righteousness of God, which is why God is essentially calling him onto the carpet. He's essentially asking Job to get in the ring with him. Right? The phrase, now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. A person girded up their loins when they are preparing for a fight. God saying, lock and load, Job. Let's get it on. You, you think you can, you can go toe-to-toe with me? Well, let's, let's see. Now, God's not going to hurt Job physically in this fight. All he's going to do is ask Job a few questions. And Job's only response to these questions is seen in chapter 40, verse 4, which is the very end. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. So God begins by exposing Job's ignorance of creation as a whole in these verses. And and he actually begins at the beginning. And he he starts at the beginning because the the very act of questioning the purpose of something assumes that you actually know what the purpose is. That you know why something was designed. For instance, if... Uh, you saw somebody, they had a pen, and they, they're using their pen for a wrong use. Maybe they're using it to pick earwax out of the ear or something. You go, wait a second. That's not what, you, you're not using it right. You're using that improperly. That would assume you know the proper use of a pen to write, for instance. By questioning God's 
purposes, he's assuming that he knows the purposes of God in all the universe. He's presuming that he knew better than God how his own life should go. So God begins by asking about the creation of the earth. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Now, God's description of the creation of the earth is is depicted like the construction of a building. A foundation is laid then measurements, their walls are built. Now, now, obviously, creation is far more complex than the construction of a building. We recognize that. But that's also the point that God's trying to make. Job, you might understand how a building is built. But I have to even just use a metaphor to even convey what the construction of the universe is like. You weren't there when the universe was made. Who are you to question me how I'm directing it to function? Right? Men can build buildings, but creating the cosmos with all the varieties of life is a totally different thing altogether. So God then asked Job about the creation of the seas. Right? Just as he used the imagery of construction in the previous verses, here he uses the imagery of childbirth, actually. The ocean here is represented as a giant infant that's breaking forth from the womb, and then it's swaddled in clothes of darkness, dark clouds. So to put this in perspective, just consider that it's only in the last hundred years or so where sea travel has become relatively safe. But through all the other thousands of years in the past, to get, to get on the sea was a very dangerous endeavor. And that, you can kind of pick up on that in a lot of the even Bible stories when they would be caught in a storm. Or you think of Jonah um, at sea. It was dangerous. So just to be able to survive the sea as a feat, just, just consider what it's like to create the sea and not just create it, but control it. Job, you weren't there with, when I created the earth and the seas. And I assume that given you're questioning me, you must, you must have the power at least to help the sunrise. Can you, can you in your life command the morning? Cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. Verse 13. Right? Every day, the sun rises without fail. There's never been a day since creation where the sun has not risen. God adds even a, a moral element to this breaking of the dawn. For when, the, when he causes the sun to rise, he, it says that those who walk in darkness hide. And the imagery here is like the shaking out of a rug. Like when the, when the dawn and the light spreads upon the earth, it's like God is shaking out all the wicked people who dwell in darkness and ply their trade at night. God keeps the wicked in check simply by causing the sun to rise. And so he's asking Job, what do you know about preventing evil from prospering? I do that every day just by causing the sun to rise. So then he directs Job's attention to the underworld. Verse 16, have you ever entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you ever seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. 
Right? His point here is, you don't even know what the underworld is like, Job. Have you ever searched out the depths of the Marianas Trench? If you don't even know what the depths of the ocean are like, how would you even know what hell is like? Which I've created. You can't understand the things that you see, let alone the things that you can't see. And there's a lot, Job, that you have never seen or can see. Who are you to question my purposes? And then in verses 19 through 24, God goes back to the very, very beginning. Right in Genesis 1, 3. Well, the, first, the first words ever spoken. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So God asked Job, where does darkness and light come from? It's interesting, even physicists can't answer this question. Right, they might be able to say, well, point to things that show, give off light, like a, a star, a burning ball of gas, or a candle. They might be able to say that gives off light. But that doesn't actually describe the creation of light. Because actually light existed before there were even stars. Right? Genesis 1-3, God spoke and there was light. The planets and stars didn't come in until Genesis 1-14, 11 verses later. Job, you don't even know how to create light. We don't even understand darkness today. Even, even astronomers have identified the presence of what's called dark matter, but they couldn't tell you what that is. They might have theories. We don't understand darkness. God then brings up the weather, verses 22 to 24. Have you entered the storehouse of the snow? Have you seen the storehouse of the hail? All right, you might have noticed just this last week that the, the weather gurus were just a little bit off on their snow prediction. Right? Two inches turned into two feet. <laughs> Whatever it was where you lived. Right? Even after millennia of learning, we're still learning about weather. And we certainly can't control it. And God's point here is if we're so ignorant of things we see and we experience every day, what, what makes us assume that we have any clue as to what God's up to in all the universe? Or even our own lives. We don't. And it's arrogant. It's, ex- it's incredibly arrogant to think we even understand what God's doing in our own lives. So not only is man disqualified from judgment due to our ignorance of creation, we're also disqualified because we can't do anything about it if we knew. We're impotent. And that's what God points out to Job in the rest of chapter 38. He begins by asking Job, who controls the harvest? Or who's cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make seeds of grass to sprout. Right? God here shows his goodness over all of creation in even desert places that thirst for water. He causes growth. He brings rain and grass sprouts. Job, you have no power to sustain life, even human life. What makes you think you could do anything about your problems, even if you understood why you have them? Every creature under heaven is absolutely dependent upon me, God says, just to make food, right? Not to mention life, health, strength, which I provide for them, right? Even though we don't acknowledge the goodness of God, 
in giving us everything that we have. He still provides it. God not only has the power to produce water from heavens, but ice also. Right? Just consider ice was not a particularly dominant feature in the Middle East. Still isn't. He says in verse 29, from whose womb has come ice? And the frost of heaven, who's given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. He says, Job, you can't, you can't make it rain and you can't make lakes ice over. What about the stars? Can you control the stars? Can you lead the stars in their precise movements across the sky so that ships, any place on the planet can be navigated by them? Do you have the power to guide in Kepler's words, the, the music of the spheres. Kepler came up with that phrase because as he studied the stars and planets, he, he saw that there was a, a mathematical parallel between the angular speeds of the planets and the harmonic range between notes. And he actually theorized that the planets literally sing together because of that mathematical similarity. And so God asks Job, can you control the stars like that? Okay, maybe something more manageable. Let's say storms. Can't control the stars? Maybe you can control storms. Verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that your abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Job, you have no control over the storms. You can't make lightning. You can't make rain. You can't make it hail. You can't even cause the land to dry out after it rains. You have no control. Notice verse 36. It's kind of subtly slipped in, but, but God's making a very specific point here. He pauses on all of his questions about nature and he asks Job, who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? He's saying, Job, not only do you not have power over these aspects of creation, you don't even have power over your own wisdom. I give it to you. Every single thing you believe and understand is a gift of grace to you. You wouldn't have a mind. You would be an idiot. You wouldn't be able to put two and two together, Job, if I didn't enable you to even do that. Recognize this, Job. And he continues to expose man's impotence to sustain life by pointing to his inability to provide food in verse 39. In particular, not just food for himself, but for lesser creatures like the animals. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and they lie in wait in their lair? God, this is, God's actually being funny here. He's being funny through a lot, of, a lot of it. But he's saying, Job, you can't provide food for lions. If you were to try and go into a lion's den to give it food, what would happen? That's right. You'd become the food. You, you have no power to keep a lion alive. What makes you think that in questioning me, I don't have the power to keep you alive? I control your life. I provide life to all of these things. God then brings up ravens, the scavenger bird, 
Have you ever thought about feeding a a raven or caring for its young? Nobody cares for ravens. Ravens take care of themselves. Well, that's actually not true. God's point is, I care for them. I give them food. I provide for them. I'm the reason animals go out of existence or they don't. I sustain them. Job, these aspects of creation that surround you every day, he says, these are things that you just take for granted and then they rarely pass, you know, a, a glimmer of thought in your mind. And they're everywhere. We just assume they will continue to exist, not realizing these are all done by God. These are all reflections about what God is doing in the universe. And we don't think about it. And that's that's what God's trying to say. You don't think about it, but that doesn't mean I'm not doing anything. It doesn't mean I don't have a purpose behind it. There are infinite number of things going on in the universe that not only are we ignorant of, we can't do anything about. And if you think about all the millions of people on the face of this earth that God is doing things in, recognize you probably don't know what's going on in your life either. You can't. You, you don't have the mind of God. That's what he's trying to communicate to us. One of the products of the Romantic movement in Western literature was, was the development of the motif of man versus nature. And it was really a reaction against the Enlightenment philosophers who suggested that if we just learn more, we can solve all the problems of life. So the, the answer to criminals is we just need to teach them the, the what, what kids need to, to have a perfect life is they just need information. Well, the romanticists recognize that no matter how much we learn, that doesn't change the nature of man. It's just information. Humans are still incredibly impotent and vulnerable on top of that. Even if they learn all they can about nature, they're still vulnerable to nature. And it developed this, again, man versus nature motif. And one of the best expressions of this was Jack London's story to build a fire. Where this man in freezing weather strives to get a fire going. And after strenuous effort and great ingenuity, he finally gets it going. You're like, all right, story's going to end. Well, it does end because there's some snow on a branch that falls on the fire and smothers it, and he ends up freezing to death. And London's point is, as brilliant as man can be, as hardworking as man can be, you can't control nature. Snow, a little snowball can kill you. And it's true. We're vulnerable. We've seen the vulnerability just in our weather today, this last week. How easily it is to just be driving along in our car and catch some ice and go spinning off into off a cliff or whatever that we might be driving by. We don't have either the knowledge or power of a creation is the point. So we can't pass judgment on God's purposes. God then brings up Job's ignorance over the animals. And it begins with the mountain goat or ibex. He says, do you know the time of the mountain goats when they give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? And he brings up the mountain goat to point out that 
Even if Job has knowledge of domesticated animals like goats, Job, you have no idea what's going on with a mountain goat in places where you can never go, that live in areas you could never get to. Job, if you can't, if you can't raise a wild animal and care for it, why do you assume that you know better how to care for yourself than I do? And this was essentially Jesus' point in Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, go ahead and go there. What a blessing this would have been to Job if he could have heard these words from Christ on that day. This is Matthew 6. Read verses 26 to 33. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil nor they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory is clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today, tomorrow it's thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Don't worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day of us trouble of its own. Next, God brings up wild donkeys. Now, wild donkeys are actually a critically endangered species. Uh, there's actually only 550 around today. Uh, none currently live in the area of Palestine, where Job was. But God asked Job in verse 5, he says, Who sent out the wild donkey? And who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and searches after every green thing. He brings up the, the donkey because the wild donkey lives out in the wilderness and, and thrives there where men would quickly die. And God's point is the wild donkey laughs at you because it doesn't need what you need to sustain life. Yeah, that dumb donkey laughs at you, Job, because of your impotence. They know how to survive in the desert better than you. But what about the wild ox? Wild ox is interesting, um, particularly because the Vulgate translates the, the Hebrew word here, unicornus. And so the King James Version actually says unicorn. Um, so if you're wondering, does the Bible talk about unicorns? It does, if you have the King James Version. Uh, some even translate the, the word for, uh, for wild ox here as rhinoceros. It's most likely referring to an extinct species called an arx. Um, so just, it's just this wild ox is kind of like imagine a, a giant bull, um, very large bovine. And, and these were such fierce animals, they were hunted by kings. Like if you could kill one of these animals, like this is one of those that you would have in your trophy case for certain. 
because only kings would hunt these things for sport with all of their armies. So what I want to make clear is this is not your typical cow. Right? This is this is fierce, aggressive, terrifying animal. Again, it'd be like taming a a rhinoceros or a moose. Like it would never cross your mind to try and have a rhinoceros for a pet. Unless you're young. I suppose as kids they want rhinoceroses. But God asked Job, would you trust an animal like a rhinoceros, this wild ox? If you know enough not to trust a wild ox to do your work, then you should know enough to know that you don't know. God then brings up the ostrich. It's a more familiar familiar animal. Uh, The Hebrew word for ostrich sounds actually like the Hebrew word for silly. That's because the ostrich is a very silly bird. And actually, that's God's point here. Now, it looks like it, with all of its plumage, its, its big feathers, that, that it should be super loving. But in its silliness, it actually fails to care for its young. It'll lay its eggs and bury them in the sand, keep, and the sand keeps it warm. And then it abandons them. And it, it allows them to be hatched on their own. So God says in verse 16, she treats her young cruelly. As if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she's unconcerned. Look at verse 17. Because God has made her forget wisdom. And has not given her a share of understanding. Like God's made her silly. But look at verse 18. When she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. So God's saying, this is a really silly bird, but this silly bird laughs at you. And it laughs because ostriches are super fast, very difficult to catch. Uh, ostriches can actually run faster than horses. This is something I learned this week. M- most horses can only run uh, 25 to 30 miles an hour. A racehorse, an average racehorse, runs up to 45 miles an hour. So that's fast. But an ostrich runs 45 miles an hour consistently. So it's going to outrun most horses and men that are going to try and catch it. So this stupid, silly bird that can't care for its young laughs at you, Job, and any who would try to catch it. And yet God sustains these birds in their stupidity on a daily basis. Well, what about horses? Humans have, have had power over horses for a long time and used them in battle and farming. But notice what he asks. About horses. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. What God is saying is, Job, even if you can train a horse to fight in a battle, to go into battle, you you don't give him that instinct. You don't give him that strength. I do. I enable you to use horses. Right? The horse innately rides into battle. Men are just simply harnessing that ability that God has given them. And it's interesting too, even though men are innately afraid of battles, wars, because they might die, the horse isn't afraid at all. It laughs. Again, just like the ostrich, it laughs at battle. 
the point the point of what he's trying to communicate to Job is Job, even when you think you're in control of something like a horse, you're not. Just to draw this out even further, like be living in the 21st century, we have harnessed the power of rocket ships. Right? We can send a spaceship to the moon. Like that's incredible technology. But consider also if one little thing goes wrong, that thing explodes. It's done. So if you're riding in that space shuttle and that one little thing goes wrong, you're no longer in control. Right? Even in the things that we make and create, we're really not in control of them. Think about, again, you're driving in a car, you hit a patch of ice, you're not in control. Well, you thought you were in control of that car, but then all of a sudden you realize you're in a danger zone. And if you're going fast enough or in a dangerous place, you could die. You're not in control as much as you think you are, even over technology. Right, we buy into illusion, this illusion of control. We can't control weather. We can't control sicknesses or car crashes. Right? And it's, only, it's not only until things go wrong, when the unexpected happens, that we realize, oh, wait a second, I really don't have a control over my life. I don't really have control over my family. I don't have control over my nation. You don't. But God does. And if our authority and knowledge is limited on earth, then how much more limited is our authority in what goes on in heaven, in God's purposes? And so God closes by making a similar point regarding the innate instinct of raptors. And then he pauses and allows Job a chance to respond in chapter 40. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. He's talking to Job here. Verse 3, Job answers. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. I'm going to shut up, God. I don't know anything. And the story is told of a college student, actually, who uh, was preparing for finals. He came to take his final exam at the end of the semester. And when he opened the exam, he realized he didn't know any of the answers to any of the questions. And so, somewhat trying to be humorous, what he decided to write on his paper was, Only God knows the answers to these questions. He then turned the paper in and went off to break. When he finally received his exam back later, at the top it read in big red letters, then God gets a hundred and you get zero. Well, Job had come to the same conclusion after hearing all of these questions, seeing God's questions that he asked. He says, God, I am a zero. I don't know anything. And he's beginning to recognize that only God has the right or the power to know what's going on in the universe. He's under no obligation to explain his purposes to any of us. Now, in his grace, he's given us his word. And again, Job was the first scripture probably ever given. 
And so it was just a taste, a foretaste of what God was going to be giving in the centuries to come. But he wasn't obligated to do that. He gives it to us as a mercy, as a grace, so that we might have some wisdom that counts for something. We can't trust our own wisdom because we don't know anything, really. Or what we do know is so limited and it's usually wrong. But God's word is never wrong. And he's given it to us as a gift. All right. God alone is sovereign and thus he's not accountable to man. As Paul writes in Romans nine. But you, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Right, we can't. Only God understands his purposes. And so our response, if we're wise is to take acknowledgement of what He has told us and then to trust Him. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would help us to trust You, deepen our convictions and open our eyes to behold more wonderful things from Your Word. And even as we look out on creation, that we would, that we would not take all these expressions of Your sovereignty and power and design and beauty for granted, but that we would learn from what you even revealed to us in nature, what you revealed to us in history, that we would learn both from science and nature and learn from Scripture so that we would grow to be truly wise and honor you no matter if it's good days or bad days, blessing or trial, that we would continue to grow to be the people that you've called us to be. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.